are so pleased to be joined by Ingrid Wirth today uh, for for any number of reasons, really. Ingrid is one of the foremost experts in uh, all kinds of international law-related uh, topics, and we um, wanted to to get her on, and we're so happy when we could schedule some time with her to talk about some real areas of overlap between people who think about sovereign debt and people who think about international law in general. And so we're super enthusiastic to, to have Ingrid here to talk about central bank immunity and a variety of, of other topics. So um, welcome, Ingrid. Thank you so much for, for coming on to join us. Yeah, thank you so much. And this, um, I, this idea you had is, is, is terrific. I really like the idea of putting um, particularly sovereign immunity issues um, um, side by side um, uh, with sovereign debt issues. So thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to two uh, great experts on that topic. Well, can we maybe start with a little bit of, uh, of background uh, and focusing for now anyway on central banks in particular, which have been um, sort of increasingly in the crosshairs, I think, for it's fair to say, for creditors of, of, of governments in the sovereign debt context and, and in other contexts as well. And it seems to us, I think, that they present some sort of challenging kinds of questions in the sense that the core distinction that the law of sovereign immunity tries to make is the distinction between commercial activities for which governments are not immune and non-commercial activities. Um, and, you know, central banks kind of pose a difficulty for that distinction in the sense that their most important activities are pretty easy to characterize as commercial in nature. And, and they're also they work in close coordination with governments at times, so they're, they're often subject to a lot of uh, control. So I'm wondering if we can just start with some background about what difficulties they pose in terms of thinking about sovereign immunity, if that's not too general a question. Uh, no, that's a, that's a terrific place to start. And um, I, I agree with you that central bank immunity is increasingly in the crosshairs. Uh, central banks have um, a lot of assets, and in fact, because they are protected from immunity um, in certain ways, there are incentives to put a lot of your assets into your central bank. Um, so yes, they have a lot of assets, and that means when we're looking for ways, especially to execute judgments, uh, central banks are an attractive, attractive target. So, but to your uh, to your question, let me say just a little tiny bit about immunity generally, because I think it might frame our conversation going forward. Um, so sovereigns are generally immune from suit in the domestic courts of foreign countries, um, and that's generally a matter of both the domestic law and certainly international law. As you've said, there are some exceptions in particular for commercial activity. If the foreign state behaves like a private party and enters into commercial contracts, it is generally not immune from suit. Now, there's a distinct form of immunity, um, and that is immunity from execution. Uh, so even if a state lacks immunity and is subject to suit based on commercial activity, if a judgment is obtained, you have a separate form of immunity 
that protects the property of the foreign sovereign from execution. Here too, there are exceptions, but importantly, these exceptions tend to be even uh, more narrow. Um, and this is the place where there are special protections for central bank assets. So the level of control exercised by the sovereign over the central bank um, is potentially relevant to both immunity from jurisdiction and immunity from execution. So if a state exercises like no control over an independently incorporated central bank, if they're entirely separate, um, that might lead to the argument that bank doesn't even get foreign state immunity at all because it's not like the foreign state. Um, and some cases around the world uh, took that approach um, at one time. Um, today, uh, they really don't. So even central banks that are um, operating in a, a super independent way from the sovereign um, tend to be uh, protected from uh, jurisdiction uh, unless an exception applies. Um, so sticking for a moment with immunity from jurisdiction, let me address the other part of your question, which goes to what constitutes commercial activity um, when it comes to central banks. Now, it's important uh, now moving to thinking about the U United States, um, when you think about the ways in which central banks might be sued, um, as a background principle, remember that for the commercial activity to exception to apply, um, you have to have some kind of nexus between the conduct um, and the United States itself. Um, so central banks um, can't be sued, even if they engage in commercial activity for conduct that has no territorial connection to the United States. But when there is some kind of connection to the United States, um, courts um, decide whether the conduct uh, is commercial uh, by asking whether it's conduct that a private corporation or a private bank could engage in. Um, so in a famous immunity decision, the Supreme Court held that the Central Bank of Argentina could be sued in the U.S. Um, for issuing bonds. Um, it said that a foreign government's um, uh, issue of regulations that limit, for, limit foreign currency exchange is a sovereign activity. Um, a contract to buy army boots is a classic commercial activity. Um, so in, in that context, um, immunity from actually from suit, there isn't a particular protection for central banks. Um, with immunity from execution or from attachment, there is, and this is the more common context in which central bank immunity arises. If a judgment creditor seeks to enforce a judgment against foreign central bank assets, um, what level of immunity applies? Uh, may please, I just please um, spin. I don't want to just pull, go. Yes, please go. Let, let me. I, I'm. I confess. Uh, I find this entire area very confusing, especially this separation of immunity from execution and immunity from judgment and commercial activity exception. So, like the most basic question that I have and Mark does not have, because he seems to actually understand all of this, is why the hell do we have this incredibly complicated system when this all seems to be a simple contractual matter? So a country either waives immunity or it doesn't. And uh, why do I care whether it's commercial, not commercial? I mean, who the hell actually wants to waive immunity from judgment, but not execution? I can't imagine any creditor would attach any value to a, a judgment without the ability to execute. So I'm wondering whether there's some sort of historical path dependence reason uh, for, or maybe there's a 
maybe this is not contractual uh, and maybe I'm thinking about it all wrong, or maybe this is just an excuse for lawyers to make money litigating this stuff. Um, yes, there is a lot in um, your question. So, I mean, I, I think on, you know, backing up the immunity, um, you know, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and um, the UN Convention, which is only in draft form, you know, were, were drafted not primarily um, or uh, with with waiver in mind, they cover as the example I just gave you, right? Um, they cover lots of situations of which waiver is only one. So you get a fairly comprehensive, you know, a, a fairly comprehensive statute that introduces some complexities. And um, when we're talking just about waiver, it is interesting that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, um, uh, when it comes to immunity from execution um, requires that the property be used for commercial activity in the United States, um, even if the foreign state has waived its immunity from attachment. So I agree with you, this is a super high bar to finding waiver. Um, first of all, you know, you need a pretty explicit waiver and then you also need um, um, property that's used for a commercial activity in the United States. Um, and, you know, why did the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act uh, do that? You know, we're moving out of a period when immunity of, 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 from execution was considered very absolute for a very long time. I mean, we're talking about seizing the assets of a foreign sovereign um, uh, in the forum state, and that received a very high level of protection. Even the European Convention um, considered those forms of, of, of immunity to be, to be absolute. Um, so that's kind of my best answer, but it, it does, in the immunity statute, it does create a great deal of complexity, and it certainly is a great area for lawyers and law professors to um, dig around in the um, um, in, in the technicalities, um, mostly on the execution side. You know, uh, as a matter um, of, of of international law, for the most part, it doesn't matter. And this is true for domestic law too. The relationship between the central bank and the sovereign. You know, a number of folks have tried to argue, a number of judgment creditors have tried to argue that a close relationship between the central bank and the foreign state um, means that special central bank protection shouldn't apply. Um, uh, either maybe it doesn't qualify as the property of the central bank, or maybe the veil, we should use veil piercing or alter ego. Um, mostly those have been, have been rebuffed. So if you can get in the category of central central bank um, immunity, um, usually the close relationship, and this just goes back to Mark's question, um, uh, doesn't um, lift or abrogate the immunity. And me too, I hope I got at least a little uh, um, traction on what you were asking. You, you, you did. I, I'm going to um, just, I think I know the answer, but I, I, I'm going to ask a clarificatory question. So when litigation happens in a U.S. court, let's say it's about uh, central bank assets of uh, a, a foreign sovereign, whose interest is uh, the law protecting? Or when a court is deciding, do I give you the immunity shield or not give you the immunity shield? Is it thinking about the interest of the United States in protecting the assets of the Argentine central bank? Or is it thinking about what what sort of um, what is the contract that the 
that Argentina made with its creditors. I, I'm thinking that it's the former and not the latter, which also is telling me it's a mistake to think about this as a contractual matter. Foreign sovereign immunity is really all about the host state's interests and maybe a tiny bit about the foreign sovereign's interests. Is it, I, I, I'm sorry, I keep oversimplifying. No, no, you're not oversimplifying at all. I think it's I think it's a great question, and um, I think that's right. I think it is mostly about the interests of the forum. Now, with central bank immunity, it's it's fascinating, right? It raises a couple of, of different points, like whose interests in the forum country are are being represented. You might have plaintiffs in the United States, right, who have our judgment creditors and seek to execute those judgments, say against Venezuela or against Argentina. And you know, from that perspective, we might think the forum should represent the interests of, of, of the plaintiffs. Um, you know, there's the reciprocity argument um, that we want the U.S. protected abroad. But central banks are even more interesting because you know we want, and and I think this is you know undergirds some of what the Second Circuit has done implicitly. Um, you know, we want foreign banks to put their money in the Federal Reserve. Right, we want to be a destination for central bank assets in in New York, and you see a very very high level of protection for those assets, especially from attachment. And you can see why attachment is such a, you know, is really where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to lift immunity from suit; it's another thing to go in and attach a foreign country's, a foreign central bank's assets. So, I mean, I think the interests of the forum, and and they vary from country to country, right? I think you see the highest levels of protection in countries that seek to be um, destination countries for the investment um, of central bank assets. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think speaking for, I can speak for me too in this, in this regard. Yeah, it does, but it, it, it highlights a really interesting tension between um, cases where the, so governments agree to all kinds of things ex ante, at least in our context, and I'm sure in other contexts, we're sort of accustomed to the officials who want to borrow money. You know, maybe they're not going to be around when the the repayment difficulties happen, if they happen, or they're over optimistic and they think there won't be repayment difficulties, and so they'll give up the store in the contract. But in, in part. I'm putting words in your mouth here, but there's a sense in which the because the law is primarily interested in avoiding creating foreign relations complications for the sort of enforcing jurisdiction, it's hard to make the case that we ought to respect all of these ex-ante waivers, right? Under US law, I think, military property you can't waive, if I'm remembering correctly. But I, I wonder if you think when the rubber hits the road, will courts really respect a contractual waiver with respect to central bank assets or embassy property, um, things that are almost certainly going to be a real complication for the government of the enforcing country? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think it is It is interesting to put um, uh, to put the the um, central bank protections in the same context as the other 
forms of property that are that are that are especially um, protected. Um, and yes, I, I think there's a, a, a real hesitancy to read waivers um, um, uh, broadly, and there is a real hesitancy to allow the attachment of central bank um, assets, uh, partly for the reasons that you uh, describe. It, it, it's interesting. Um, also, some uh, countries are conditioning their protection of foreign central bank assets explicitly on reciprocity. Um, and this is sort of a way, I think, of exporting a high level of central bank protection, right? So China, in effect, says, yeah, we'll provide absolute protection to your uh, central bank assets, and this includes Hong Kong, um, right? But only if you would provide the same level to us, uh, uh, Chinese um, uh, central bank assets uh, located abroad. Um, so I think, I mean, it's just a way of saying, I think there's a variety of, of pressures kind of working on, 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 on forums states in, in terms of the legislation, um, the legislative approach that they that they take. So um, Ingrid, to, to get back to the pressures, and I, I since I focus so much on contracts, I can't help but think about that. So you talked about the, pre the, the incentive that uh, the U.S. has in getting people to uh, deposit central bank assets with us. But then there's also the simultaneous pressure of the US being a financial capital and wanting countries to borrow in the US and wanting creditors to buy assets uh, that are under US law. And the US is famously considered a more creditor protective location, and in particular, a creditor protection, protective location that tries to reduce interference from the domestic sovereign that might be tempted to play favorites uh, with one sovereign borrower uh, versus another vis-a-vis -vis the creditors. And, my impression from this area of immunity uh, is that it's just it's completely unclear that if the US government, if President Trump, for example, comes in and says, uh, you know, I really don't like President Maduro, uh, you know, you should do the X, Y, or Z on immunity, that it's quite possible they're, they're going to get deference because they don't think of this as an area where predictability and certainty should be provided? Um, so there's so much in your question. Let me start with the beginning part. And then if That's I don't- That's because I'm completely confused. I'm no, so no, no, sorry. No, you're not. But, if, you, but if, if, I, if I answer the beginning part and I don't get to the end, just, just, just remind me. Um, so you, you were talking about the US as being um, you know, a very a, a jurisdiction in which um, we tend to enforce the contracts as written. Um, we're a very creditor protective location. Um, I, think that's, I think that's right. You know, certainly the litigation around Argentinian sovereign debt put us in that category and you know, not wanting to favor um, um, uh, you know, certain countries um, over others in terms of repaying debts that are due. I think what you've said is a really fair characterization. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting in the Argentinian debt 
um, um, uh, situation and also when we talk about foreign sovereign immunity for terrorism and other things, you know, it is a lot harder to enforce those judgments, right? Um, so, you know, what you tend to wind up there with is a judgment. And then, um, you know, I'm not so much disagreeing with your, with your point. I, I'm just saying, you know, getting to the judgment is one thing. And we see this in, in Congress a lot, right, with the Justice Against State Sponsors of Terrorism Act and other, where, where Congress will loosen up the ability um, um, of, of, of aggrieved people, whether it's contractually aggrieved or aggrieved through tort, to sue a foreign sovereign um, and then leave them holding a very large judgment that is extremely difficult to enforce. Um, and that difficulty is even higher in the, for the categories of property that Mark um, I, I identified. So, you know, I think your characterization of the U.S. is correct, but there's still this big difference between um, your ability to get the judgment and then your ability to enforce it. And what was the second part of the question? Oh, the, the federal government, the, the president, can he come in and say, like, no, you're not entitled to immunity or you are? Is that was that was? The yes, second? that was the exact. This just seems so ripe for executive interference, which I thought the whole point of the sovereign Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was to say, here, we, we are no longer going to let this uh, area of law be decided by the whims of uh, the president. And instead, buried in the FSIA seems to be this uh, sort of, it seems to contradict the entire purpose that I thought the whole thing was set up for. Yes, so that's exactly right. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was enacted to take um, immunity determinations away from the State Department. And I will just add um, for your listeners information that the State Department wanted that they were tired of making immunity determinations and they wanted to get out of that business. And so um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is designed to keep immunity decisions away from um, the executive branch. Now, it, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does not apply to individual immunities like head of state immunities. Um, and there the president and the State Department continue to um, um, exert a, a high level of control over those immunity determinations. Um, but you're, you're also right, what Congress has done um, in a variety of contexts. It has passed very specific legislation allowing um, for certain kinds of creditors to execute against certain kinds of property. And often it's the president then that, that has the ability to make decisions about what property um, is subject to execution and what property isn't. And that is certainly one way that the president um, is coming in through the back door. But the president can't go to the Second Circuit and say, um, I'm lifting central bank immunity from execution for um, Venezuelan central bank assets or German central bank assets. The president lacks the authority to do that. And I, I, you didn't say that it, that it had that authority, but I don't want to confuse listeners. That is not something the courts would permit the president to do. Well, thanks, Ingrid. Let's take a short break. And then I think um, we can pick up probably with this um, theme of deference or lack of deference to the executive when we come back. Well, we are back now, and I'm very excited to get further into the weeds. And hopefully Ingrid will uh, tell us if we're going, if we're strangling ourselves in these weeds. But Ingrid, I want to ask about the connection between what we've been talking about, which is this complex area of immunity uh, from execution, which seems 
very hard to get removed. And the vast power of the US president to engage in claim settlements. And I confess, I don't understand this area at all. Although given that Mark and I work on sovereign debt, the history of sovereign debt should have resulted in us learning a lot about presidential claim settlements because those are a way of restructuring sovereign debt. Yet I, I know uh, nothing. So I'm hoping um, you can tell us a little bit about this because you have a wonderful article that talks about it, uh, I think. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a great question, and and they are um, the issue of foreign sovereign immunity and issues of foreign sovereign immunity and sovereign debt are very closely linked to um, claim settlement, and in in fact, um, you know, as 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 Mark knows, as as both of you know. Um, Claim settlement, you know, used to be the way uh, we resolved a lot of problems between um, U.S. corporations and foreign governments, right? So, you know, back in the 30s, when uh, Mexico expropriated um, oil um, companies' property in Mexico, those were resolved through big lump sum claim settlement agreements negotiated by the Secretary of State and his counterpart in in Mexico. And so, the the key thing for our purposes is there's no uh, litigation, there's no immunity from suit, there's no judgment obtained, and there's no need to execute that judgment. Now, we replaced a lot of the claim settlement um, with um, um, bilateral investment treaties and investor state dispute resolution in which we use arbitration. And what results is an arbitral award that then needs to be enforced. So the, the efforts to enforce very large judgments that have been obtained through arbitration is in part because um, we see this reduction in the amount of claim settlement by, by foreign governments. And we even see that um, today in the United States. So terrorism-related litigation, um, which had, you know, one at one time would have been resolved through claim settlement. And we still have some claim settlement. For example, there's a settlement uh, pending with Sudan for terrorism-related activities. But increasingly what we see is um, Congress um, lifting immunity, and then we see domestic legislation that results in a massive judgment against the foreign sovereign, and then Congress um, uh, reducing the barriers to execution, including lifting central bank immunity. Um, so yes, these developments are, 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 are very um, closely linked. And before we go too far, I, I wanted to pick up on on that theme in just a second. But before we go too far down this road, is there a, so Congress, as you point out, has taken some steps to reduce uh, the protections of immunity in the context, especially of uh, terrorism related judgments. Is there a, a minimum that international law requires in terms of central bank immunity? And I'm thinking about execution immunity in particular. And I, I ask, I guess a different way to put the question is, is the U.S. in violation of customary <laughs> international law here? And whether you, um, uh, we don't have a, like a formal answer to that, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts on it. 
Yeah, I, I, I do. So, you know, immunity, some uh, special protections for central banks um, from measures of execution um, do vary globally. Um, you'll find very different approaches. But I, I think there is a um, minimum required by customary international law. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that central bank assets that are used for sovereign non-commercial purposes, um, such as foreign currency reserves, um, are entitled to um, immunity under customary international law. Um, and I think state practice globally um, absolutely supports that. And if anybody wants to know why I think that, there's a, I have a book chapter up on SSRN and you can go read why, I, why the evidence uh, behind that. Um, and yes, the United States um, Congress um, enacted legislation in 2012 um, that designated a set of assets um, available to satisfy uh, judgments against Iran. Um, and at least if we believe um, some of the Iranian submissions um, from the Bank Markazi, um, some of those assets were used for traditional central bank purposes like currency reserves. And assuming that that is factually correct, um, I think those turnover orders, um, whether even whether they are put into place, even the orders themselves do violate um, customary international law. And we'll have a link actually to that article in the in the show notes. I, I had meant to say. Can so going back to where we were before that that question. Part of the tension, I think I hear you describing, is that in the world where this was all sort of run by the executive, we didn't have vast pressures to. Um, allow the seizure of assets, but then once the litigation floodgates open, um, then of course um, there's a, a, a great creditor push for recovering, and that requires um, maybe a, a relaxation of the rules of execution immunity. But then, then it seems like the counterdevelopment is that sometimes the president sort of unilaterally comes in to limits creditor enforcement rights. I mean, we saw that with Iraq and we're seeing it now in a sense with Venezuela. And I'm wondering what limits there are on the president's ability to come in and say, you know what, these assets or this particular country's assets, even though the FSIA would make them available to a creditor, they're now off the table. That's gonna depend on a large set of statutes that delegate authority to the president um, to um, uh, seize assets or control assets. So I think those those questions aren't really a question of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Um, the question isn't so much, um, are the assets entitled to immunity? Um, the question is more, has the president simply blocked the transfer of these assets under the IEPA or any any one of the other um, uh, statutes? So the, the, the specific situations um, under those statutes, which the presidents can invoke um, uh, power um, to prevent the transfer of assets. I, I can't answer that generally. Ingrid, can I? Um, all right. So you might have said you can't answer this generally, but I'm going to ask anyway because we're we're very curious. Okay. So let let me set it up in the context that I think Mark was referring to, and that the both of us are thinking a lot about in the context of both our class and research, and that's the context of 
COVID-19. And so we're seeing in the COVID context, uh, massive government borrowing around the world in order to deal with the health crisis. So, I mean, the debt stocks are higher than in terms of debt to GDP ratios than they've been in a really long time and growth rates are really low. So if you worry that, you know, after we we're out of COVID-19 that the economies around the world are not going to sort of pick up in this amazing way that makes it okay for uh, the developed countries to have these huge debt to GDP ratios, then we should expect uh, bad things to happen, meaning a bunch of uh, big sovereign debt crises. Now, given that almost all of the emerging market nations who tap the international markets borrow primarily in the US or the UK. Uh, a question that we have talked about is whether in a way similar to uh, what was done with Iran in the, con you know, the Dames and Moore litigation and the presidential executive order meeting, moving stuff to The Hague, or in a way done uh, with Iraq um, in 2003, 2004, with the executive orders protecting central bank assets, it is uh, plausible to think that the US could create something of a global immunity shield temporarily to protect countries against litigation, just to let countries uh, exit the COVID crisis. So please tell me if this is too vague or too unclear, uh, but that, that's, yeah. that's sort of the big picture question that I'm thinking about. And then there's a little picture question around here, assuming none of that happens, like that's just too big of an ask. The next solution that we've thought about is, you know, maybe a country could claim something like the necessity defense in court and maybe the US executive would come in and say, yeah, we, we think this is a case of necessity. And uh, you know, we know customary international law is really unclear, but yeah, we think COVID-19 creates a situation of necessity. All right, I've asked way too many questions in the guise of asking a single one. So oh, feel no, free to ignore. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of it in the COVID um, context. So that's that's um, um, interesting. So um, you're absolutely right. So in the Dames and Moore case, you know, the Supreme Court um, famously upheld um, the Algiers Accords, um, which resolved the Iran hostages uh, crisis, and um, you know, wound up settling uh, claims um, by folks in the United States against the Iranian government. Um, the Dames and Moore case really threaded a statutory thicket that involves precisely the statute that I mentioned, like the IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Um, and so I'm, I'm just going to say the, the ability of the, the president to freeze any particular assets or um, suspend claims um, it in, involves a lot of dicey questions of statutory interpretation. And particularly in Dames and Moore, the president's power to actually settle 
claims um, is, is one that was not conferred to him um, through the IEPA and one that the Supreme Court did some kind of sleight of hand to find, um, you know, in Justice Jackson's categories that we were in some sort of, um, you know, congressional authorization, even though there wasn't any explicit congressional authorization. And I'll just note there is actually a constitutional, a couple constitutional problems here um, with the president purporting to make binding domestic law through the claim settlement process. And there's also potentially kind of takings clause problems. Um, so again, the answer is really going to come down to what does the web of IEPA and other statutory delegations to the president um, allow him to do? Um, but I actually don't see the authority for the president to come in and give a kind of broad COVID um, style, you know, all your COVID, all your contract claims and tort claims that might be related to COVID, I'm, I'm suspending those. I don't think the president has that authority as a statutory matter, and therefore I don't think he has it as a constitutional matter. Um, um, I'm a little more skeptical of executive power in this area, so I, I, I will say that there are other scholars who might, who might, um, uh, disagree um, with with that. Um, and I think the same thing comes in the president. So the president comes in and says, hey, everybody, you have really great, valid, meritorious claims against foreign governments um, that are cognizable in US courts, and there's no immunity. But I'm going to come in and say that the necessity defense, I, I don't think that's constitutional. What is so there's a that's um, what about a softer kind of um, influence. So uh, I think many people, many participants in the debt markets do think that courts will give near complete deference to the executive's views. And part of what I'm hearing you saying is that that's, um, that's uh, uh, overstated. That's certainly not likely to be the case. But um, what about on more procedural matters. So a, a different wrinkle of the, the idea that Me Too proposed is simply that litigation ought to be stayed for some reasonable period of time to, um, which happens to sort of correspond to the breathing spell that might be necessary to get through COVID. Um, and, you know, I, it does seem that in many cases uh, where the question has to do with what the litigation process should look like, courts have been relatively open to following the executive's lead. Am I, am I misreading the, the degree of deference there? Or, or do you think there's some way to use procedure to kind of sneak in through the back door uh, something like the substantive a necessity stay that Me Too is talking about. Oh my gosh, I just love that question because uh, Me Too, if you're a contracts professor and so you see contracts and everything, I'm a Civ Pro professor, so I see Civ Pro and everything. Uh, Mark, do you teach? Which one do you teach? I, I teach a little bit of both, actually. Okay, right. I teach advanced Civ <laughs> Pro classes and I teach contracts for one so, of um, so, so yes, thank you so much for clarifying that. Yes, my, you know, original answer went to kind of use the word softer. I think that's exactly right. My original answer kind of went to this, you know, a hard power of the president to simply come in and make domestic litigation dis 
disappear um, as, as, as a legal matter. Um, uh, and I, I think the, the question you raised, Mark, is a, is a fantastic one. What sort of procedural um, vehicles are there for some kind of, of stay? There are various forms of, of abstention um, for that, you know, could maybe come into play. Um, there are also various forms of international comedy um, that also might come into play. Um, I think, um, and this goes back to Me Too's point, the president's um, power is, um, and even soft power here, I believe is going to be greatest if he can say he is trying to negotiate some kind of claim settlement agreement, um, right? And there the idea would be, look, we're trying to solve this through foreign policy channels. We're trying to solve this through claim settlement. Um, and what we need is to use your words, Mike, we need, a, we need some space here, we need a little bit of breather, and we need to pause these cases on international comedy grounds. Um, I can't say I'm a, I'm a huge um, fan of that necessarily, because remember, Congress could pause these things anytime Congress wants. What we're, only thing we're talking about here is the executive branch's ability to do this unilaterally. Um, so I'm, I'm also um, not a huge fan of the, the pausing mechanism, but I think it's far more plausible that that would be successful, Mark. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join us. I know we've only kind of scratched the surface here, but we were really excited to get to hear your thoughts on central banks and other things. And uh, hopefully we can continue the, the conversation a bit later. Yeah, thank you so much.